In her novel, Toward Zero, Agatha Christie claimed that most murder mysteries are actually told in the wrong order, that Zero Hour, the murder itself, should come at the end of the story since most everything that went into the murder, the motive, the planning, the mischance and happenstance, all occurs well beforehand. You have to turn back the clock from Zero Hour all the way to the beginning to really find out how the murder happened. Well, sure, that's easy for her to say, since she was the one doing all the planning. It's pretty much a given for an author to know what's going to happen next, or how all of the events that happened in such and such a way affect such and such a result. And then we, the readers, get to follow along blindly as everything unfolds before us, and still get shocked by the ending. Sure, we might go back and read it again and pick up all the clues that were right there the whole time. Like we might go back and rewatch an M. Night Shyamalan twist fest and kick ourselves for not seeing that wildly obvious finale from a mile away. But we don't often do the same thing with history and world events, because like Agatha Christie says, we start the story at zero hour. It's incredibly easy to Monday morning quarterback history to look back and say, how come they didn't see that coming? Those fools! Especially when it's this giant, world-altering event that costs millions of lives and will most certainly lead to centuries of generational trauma for millions more. The tragedy of the Holocaust and the evil that drove it are both so immense in scale that you look at the end result and everything about it seems obvious in hindsight. But you don't start out murdering millions of innocent people in a coldly efficient, carefully orchestrated, government-mandated genocide. You start somewhere else, with something that might seem fairly innocuous. If you turn back the clock from the ending and try to find where it all began, assigning responsibility gets a lot more complicated, and it's a kind of complicated with which most people have little interest in engaging and big, star-studded Hollywood blockbusters even less so. Which makes today's film unique for its genre, its era, and its subject matter. It's also the first major Hollywood production to really grapple with the realities of the Holocaust, making the level of nuance it's able to achieve all the more impressive. It launched long and illustrious careers for some of its stars, and provided graceful curtain calls for the ends of the careers of some others. And it's a film that asks some incredibly difficult and often contradictory questions without ever losing sight of the right answer. That regardless of everything that led up to it, murder is still murder. War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So come sip some Schweibenwinkel with a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director as we discuss Stanley Kramer's gripping post-war courtroom melodrama from 1961, Judgment at Nuremberg. Call it in. It's danger close. 
Welcome back, everyone, to Danger Close uh, War Film Podcast. We are back for, I suppose this is our second episode back into our regular format with yours truly, Dan, and my awesome partners, Katie and Liam. And we are here to talk about a Liam pick that we have definitely discussed here and there uh, in other episodes, Judgment at Nuremberg from 1961, directed by Stanley Kramer, and Katie's here with our mission briefing. Based on a radio play by Abby Mann, who would go on to adapt that script for the film, Judgment at Nuremberg was a fictionalized account of the trial of the Nazi judges that took place in 1947. The real trial was of 16 jurists and lawyers who were officials of the Reich Ministry of Justice, or part of the various special courts that the Nazis implemented. This trial was the third in a series of 12 that attempted to hold those in power during the regime accountable for their actions, particularly those who helped further the implementation of the Holocaust. The film cuts the number of defendants down to four and combines those four into amalgamations of the different individuals who actually stood trial. The film has a great cast, including Spencer Tracy as chief judge, Burt Lancaster as the most prestigious Nazi, Maximilian Schell as defense counsel, Richard Widmark as the prosecutor, and many others, including Marlena Dietrich, Judy Garland, and William Shatner in small but pivotal roles. The film premiered in West Berlin to extremely mixed audience reactions, with the critics who were invited giving fulsome praise, while the Germans in attendance generally left in silence. Judgment at Nuremberg was one of the first mainstream films to use the American and British footage of the concentration camp liberation, and possibly because of this, it had a great impact on audiences and critics. It went on to be nominated for 11 Oscars and won two, including Best Actor for Maximilian Schell and Best Adapted Screenplay. The Academy also used this as an opportunity to present director Stanley Kramer with the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award in commemoration of his entire body of work. I might be skipping to the end with this, but let's start with looking at this from a courtroom and legal aspect. And from that perspective, how does this film rate for you? I suppose I'll go first because, as you'll soon find out, Liam knows more about this than I do, which I'll let him talk about. But uh, that was one of the questions I constantly was asking myself watching this. I sometimes watch legal YouTube channels and stuff. Uh, if you want a good one, Legal Eagle is a really good channel, and he has covered a couple of times my cousin Vinny. Which which is the best. Yep. Well, not only is it such a great comedy, but lawyers all comment on how all of the procedures in court are pretty much dead on balls accurate, to borrow a term from the film. Dead on balls accurate. It's an industry term. And so I was kind of in that legal mindset of thinking, huh, I wonder if the procedures here are correct. But it's like it's representing it's. Filmed in the late 50s, representing the 40s in an international court that had never really been done before. So I was like, oh, I don't even know what the precedent is here. So if anyone is more knowledgeable than us about the actual legal procedure in this, I would love to hear about it because our research did not go into that. As far as my own personal opinion, I thought that while again, I'm not going to catch discrepancies such as like, is the defendant going to be allowed to make a statement in front of the court? I don't know. Everything else I saw seemed to kind of follow general legal procedure. 
The defense has an opening statement. The prosecution has an opening statement. There are witnesses called. There's cross-examination. And I know the intent, which we'll talk about a little bit later, of this system was basically Nazi Germany took justice away from so many people in court. The last thing we're going to do is not give them justice. We're going to do this properly. We're going to let them have defense attorneys, etc., which I think is a really noble concept. So I'm guessing that it's pretty accurate, even considering that it's somewhat fictionalized. So, yeah. Is that your question? Did I answer your question? Mm-hmm. You <laughs> <Okay>. did. Yep. <laughs> Liam, what about you? Um, again, there's a spectrum. And on the one end, you have my cousin Vinny, which is about as accurate as it gets. On the other end, you have. Law and order. Yeah, sure. I mean, all those order, TV shows do a lot of garbage all the time. They do. They, you know, and it's they play for the dramatic effect. But I mean, even something like the trial of the Chicago seven, hmm. there was another one that was based on a true story. It still ends with this weird early 90s everybody cheering as the judge bangs the gavel in the courtroom right and he can't shut them up so it was just such a weird thing to make in a movie today but it was very popular at one point where i don't know liar liar how about that we go from (laughs) like yeah my cousin Vinny on one end and liar liar on the other where it's like the the legal accuracy isn't really the point (laughs) it's a good way of putting it did you (laughs) Mystery! You had sex with her every time you met, didn't you? Didn't you? Liar! He's badgering the witness. It's his witness. This, I would think, is somewhere in between. And again, like you said, Dan, we can't really speak to its accuracy as far as the procedural things. The thing that I like about it as a legal courtroom drama is there's never anything quite so glaring that it takes you out of it and being like, I don't know if I'd fucking do that. You know what I mean? Like it's plausible given the the circumstances. And there are points where it does get very melodramatic. Yes. And there are points where you're like, I don't know if I agree with the thought process to sustaining or overruling that particular objection, but, but that's all, that's all subjective though. That is again, that's, that's good, you know, but it's, I'm like, what's the legal precedent for like sustaining that objection versus overruling this one? You know, so mm-hmm. some like if you really get into the nitty gritty of it, maybe there's some uneven things there. But again, that can happen in a real courtroom as well. But I think as a legal drama, it works maybe in like on the hinterlands of legal melodrama in places for sure. But um, for me, I, I think it works very well. And Katie? So I've watched a lot of courtroom stuff. I, I grew up watching Law and Order of all of its many, many stripes and similar ilk with my mom far too, far too young when I was supposed to be asleep. And I've watched other courtroom stuff since then that is more reputable and some that's less reputable because it really depends on which Law and Order you're watching. I'm going right. to be honest. <laughs> and the closer it gets to the president, the worse off it is by far and away. And I think this film is able to sometimes grasp that accuracy and sometimes not. Sometimes, like, you can really see where the plot is going and why, like, 
I think the biggest moment for me is when is the interview with Irene Hoffman, where the prosecutor or the excuse me, the defense attorney is just like screaming at her and she's crying. It's like, no, you don't get to badger the witness like that. But if you don't allow that to happen, if you don't allow that scene to go too far, then there isn't as much justification for Yanning finally losing it and deciding he's done. He's fucking done with this. And is going to say his piece. And there are, there are a few moments like that that are very obviously leaning into that melodrama to allow the story to move along. So, and it's definitely a bit of the time period that it was in the late 50s, early 60s. They were really moving into that new wave of cinema. And you can really start to see that in this movie. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's pretty good. But I thought that the legal aspect of it is a really good place to start because I do think that that is the heart of what the movie is talking about. Like This film is really trying to say something about the morality and the legal system and, and getting its audience to ask themselves those hard questions. And you would have a difficult time doing that so specifically with what it's engaging in outside of a courtroom drama because it would just be like so much exposition. <laughs> Whereas there's a lot of room for exposition in a courtroom drama. Yeah, it's a lot of exposition, but also I think it would feel, because this movie is really a framing for arguments, which a courtroom is a good place for that. But all of the scenes are the framing of different arguments Mm -hmm. around the events of World War II in Germany and the Holocaust and um, the... Right. You know, even his conversations with the housekeeper are all these continued, not necessarily fights, but like different points of view on something that the entire world at this point was reeling from still and grappling with. Right. It's about the culpability, I think, specifically of the Holocaust. Right. So, Liam, we don't usually do this on the regular show. Usually it's in DCE where we have to defend our stance as to why this is kind of barely a war film or whatever. Clearly, this is mostly a courtroom drama and it's 90% dialogue and very slow. It's very gripping, but there isn't any action in it. Um, Why did you decide to put this on the main war film feed and then maybe introduce us to the basic, basic plot before we get into these bigger themes? Yeah, this one is maybe a little bit more of an edge case for us. I think we've had edgier cases on the main feed, but Mm a couple of reasons. Not only is this dealing directly with the events of the Holocaust in World War II, there is a pretty, and this is, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, you should probably be aware of this. There is some pretty gnarly war footage, or really just footage from when the allies came through and liberated the concentration camps and Eisenhower and company was like, film everything because nobody will believe us if we don't, it's too bad not to tell people about, but we have to have some kind of proof. And so they did, they filmed everything and there is film reel footage from those films that is shown in the courtroom in this movie. And it is very graphic. Like, aside from live violence, this is obviously the aftermath, not the actual execution of violence. But I thought it was more shocking than most of the things you see in, like, Schindler's List, for example. Especially because they're all real and they're real people. Like, I was appalled, yeah. Yeah, it is is a, a pretty rough watch in parts. 
And on top of that, this whole thing is set against the backdrop of the beginning of the Cold War, 1948, with mm-hmm. the the crisis in Berlin where Germany is getting divvied up between the Western powers and the Soviet powers. And the the Berlin airlift is actually one of the things that's going on in the background of this story that is then putting additional pressure on the events that are happening in the courtroom. So I think that there were enough elements to justify it being on the main feed. And also, this is one that I mean, I've seen this movie a lot since I probably saw it for the first time in high school. And it definitely struck me and it has stuck with me, not just because of the events of the Holocaust and how they're depicted and uh, how graphic and gripping that is. But also, I found the way that they presented these arguments from so many different points of view to be really compelling. And a lot of the acting in it is really great. So that was one that I, I just felt like this was one that we should probably talk about on the main feed. Yeah, and I agree with you. I just wanted to hear you explain it, but I definitely agree that it belongs here. And we've we mentioned it enough in other instances. Usually in dealing with the foreign languages. Yeah. Because this movie, it's one of my favorite instances of dealing with different people speaking different languages in the world of the movie, but we hear them all in English. Like we talked about this in The Hunt for Red October Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and at least one other one, I think. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so this movie, it takes place in 1948 and it deals with, you know, after in the aftermath of World War II, they were putting a lot of the Nazi high command on trial for war crimes. And most of those big trials in this movie have already come and gone. And now they are doing what are, I guess would be considered some of the lesser trials. The basic plot is that they bring Spencer Tracy out of retirement, both <laughs> in, in universe and in, in the real world. Uh, they, they pulled Spencer Tracy up out of the mothballs and like got him up on set. And it was great. He is really great in this. He is great in this. He's, a circuit court judge. They couldn't find anybody else who wanted this assignment because these trials have become less and less popular and less and less interesting to people as time goes on. And he is in charge of heading up the tribunal that is overseeing the case of four Nazi judges of varying degrees of despicability. You have the classic evil, insane Nazi judge on the one end. And then you have Burt Lancaster on the other (laughs) (laughs) in very powdery makeup yet again. I I I think we got that in seven days in May too, which filmed like two years after this one, you know, they, they definitely aged him up some in this, Um, this is like Birdman of Alcatraz looking kind of, kind of Burt Lancaster, which is what he would have filmed directly before he filmed this movie. Yeah. it's, It's definitely a phase for him. And prosecution of these four judges falls on Colonel Lawson, who was present at the liberation of some of these concentration camps and was present when this film footage happened in the world of the the film. These are all fictional characters or highly fictionalized characters. But so he is a bit of a he's very gung ho in seeing these prosecutions through because he saw it all firsthand. On the defense side, you have a German intellectual lawyer, Herr Rolf, who is played by Maximilian Schell. And I, I got to say, he is probably my favorite character in the movie, just because I find him to be 
of everyone the most complex and conflicted and interesting. Um, oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, I really do. I and I think Maximilian Shell gives a great performance in that. Uh, yes, definitely. The Academy also thought so. Yes, they. Yes, they did. <laughs> yes, they did. Um, <laughs> not for the not for the last time about Shell either. He was definitely like one of the Academy's favorites at this point in his career. He is tasked with defending the judges, but the Burt Lancaster judge Ernst Yawning wants nothing to do with it, and he is a very uncooperative client so basically they go through and try to prove that the things that these judges did and the sentences that they passed and how they operated within the ministry of justice and in their courtrooms and what they decided to pursue and the things that they let slide really like the the different policy changes that they stood silently by that all of that comes together to equate to these guys committed war crimes and atrocities that they're responsible for themselves. And that's kind of the central question of the movie that everybody is debating, but it also has larger implications throughout that calls into question how this happened, how it happened in Germany, how it could happen somewhere else, etc. This brings up international law and war crimes and how you go about that because that is legally a complicated question aside from the moral aspect of it it's how do you put people on trial in a country where they were following the laws of their country but you're putting them in an international court and saying that they committed crimes against humanity if you don't have precedent set up for that legally speaking and this was one of the first times that a trial like this happened like now if you go to the milosevic trials from the bosnian wars for example like they had precedent these things have happened they have legal precedent to go back to so right and so you know part of the german defense is kind of going well some of the defendants are like, well, we don't recognize the legitimacy of this court. This is just you won a war and now you're imposing your laws and your will on us, but we don't recognize your authority. And that was an actual issue. So without getting too complicated into the history, I did a brief brush up on this. And basically the four allies who won the war through a series of charters and agreements that once started in Moscow, eventually ended up with the London Charter of the International Military Tribunal, which was an agreement between France, the UK, the US and the Soviet Union in 1945. They had to kind of set up a system for, okay, who is going to try these people? Where are we going to try them? What language are we going to do it in, et cetera, et cetera. And from what I gathered about the setup, the defense prosecution and lawyer advocate part of it kind of came from the UK and the US system, while the panel of judges without a jury and the way judgment was brought down and sentencing and stuff that came more of a mix of French and Soviet law. So it's kind of a mix of four big nations, legal procedures put into one to create this international military tribunal. War crimes under international law were established at the Hague in 1907. Although I don't know the history of any famous trials like this that happened post World War One, that would be a good thing for someone in the audience to bring up if they know about it. I know we have a lot of World War One scholars. Unless Katie, are you familiar with anything else from earlier? 
no, no, this is this is pretty much accepted as the first like modern war crimes trials. It wasn't really thought of as a thing before World War One when it became a world war. There's the Leipzig trials, which were held in 1921 to 1927, but that was a very like fraction of the horrific crimes that were committed. So most of their ways of penalizing the German government and Germany as a whole, both individual and general, was the Treaty of Versailles. They kind of thought that covered it. And then they were like, oh, well, there's these few cases. Let's be seen to look like we're responding to it. Right. But there also was not a Holocaust in World War I Germany. It was a bit more, there were certainly war crimes committed, but it was a bit more straightforward falling into the war category where like you're abusing prisoners of war and that type of thing rather than you know you're trying to commit wholesale genocide against certain minorities for sure and people who didn't agree with you right okay well to the audience if we have lawyers or law scholars in the audience please write in or post in our uh, facebook group and let us know about war crime trial history and what happened kind of before world war ii but these are the famous ones Side note, speaking of the language issue, IBM was the company that stepped in and figured out the simultaneous interpretation system, which was new and basically invented for these trials because they wanted to see, okay, how do we mix two, three, four different languages in relative real time and not bog down this trial with the classic kind of, I say this, then I pause, then I wait, then you translate. Gericht, Richter. May it please the tribunal. Es ist nicht nur eine große Ehre. It is not only a great honor, sondern eine ebenso große Herausforderung. Also a great challenge. Für einen Advokaten. For an advocate. Diesem Gericht bei seiner Aufgabe zu helfen. To aid this tribunal in its task. Someone was kind of translating simultaneously, which is probably a good time to lead right into the language portion of this that Liam alluded to earlier. Because I was watching for it because Liam had told me about it and I was like excited. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I'm waiting for this moment where we get the switch. Waiting for this crash zoom? Yeah, where we get the switch from German to English. A lot of crash zoom. A lot of crash zooms. Not a fan of those generally. And this one uses it too much, but. Okay. This was a good use of it. Yeah, there are places where it uses it really well, and then there are sometimes where it's like, "Whoa, hey, like, hey, guy, you got a little, little too much in there." Hey, Bert Lancaster. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot of teeth you got there. Dude has too many teeth. Too many <laughs> teeth in his mouth. He looks oh. like a crocodile. But yeah, the well, and it was interesting too because in again the spectrum of how you can do a language transition in a film where you've decided you're not going to subtitle the whole thing and do it in German and English they still kept the headsets on which makes sense mm-hmm. you can't just make those disappear but they also for the most part there's a couple of continuity errors but for the most part they kept the timing of it so that it's like if a question was asked in English there was a one or two second delay with the interpreter where the person had to listen to the German in their ears and then respond in English. So they're speaking English in the film when in reality they're actually speaking German. But of course, the film does some movie magic to just make it easier mm-hmm. for the audience. And I thought it was pretty flawless. Like that was a really, really cool way to do it. The gesamte zivilisierte Welt, the entire civilized world, wird diesem Prozess folgen. Will follow closely what we do here. Denn es ist kein gewöhnlicher Prozess. For this is not an ordinary trial. By any means of the accepted parochial sense. Der anerkannte Sinn dieses Gerichts. The avowed purpose of this tribunal. Is broader than the visiting of retribution on a few men. 
Yeah, that really set the standard for me how it's like you start and it's like panning through and you're in the booths with the interpreter. He's saying something in German and then the interpreter saying it in English and then it just raises up a little bit so it can get mm-hmm. that good crash zoom in and then it like right over the glass just like mm-hmm. right up into Maximilian mm-hmm. Shell's face and then he starts without dropping a stitch speaking in English and he mm-hmm. nails it yeah I mean and everyone did a pretty good job with their German accents if they weren't German speakers uh, Shell is uh, born in Austria he's Swiss so his accent is probably different from a born and raised German but obviously he's a native speaker but from Judy Garland to Burt Lancaster, there are a lot of not native German speakers who I thought did pretty nice, subtle accents. Where Montgomery Clift, I thought did fabulous in this film. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, nobody use nobody pushes it too far. I think that was the key: is that they like just added a little bit of it to remind the audience this person is supposed to be speaking German, mm-hmm. rather than like sound German if you're not actually German, which you know Shell obviously was. And I think most of the Nazis that are being tried, except Burt Lancaster, were, I believe, as well. I think Burt Lancaster probably could have pushed it a little bit harder. Yeah, but... Yeah, but... I I know you get into trouble when you tell Burt Lancaster to go bigger, so, like... Yeah, you gotta, you gotta right. tread softly with Bert. You don't want to be like, man, just ride it out. And then he'll just be, mm, it won't sound good. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's always interesting going back to these old films and looking back at things from 70 years ago. At least for me, I think about the techniques and trying to look at it from the perspective of the 1950s and thinking, well, what had been done before? How much of this was innovative and new? And it was interesting. I read a comment from the director who basically looking back at it was disappointed with uh, his use of doing the 360 degree camera pans behind uh, the speaker. Yep. Does too much of that too. I agree. And he was like, I, I shouldn't have done it. It was too much. I personally disagree. Well, although, okay, sure. You could argue that it maybe it was done too much, but I definitely think certainly in some of the times when he did it, I thought it was a really nice touch especially for the time, because it felt very modern for the time period. Mm -hmm. And it felt kind of interesting. I know oftentimes, especially Liam, we've talked about like, God damn it, just plant the fucking camera so that we can watch what's happening. Mm -hmm. But it's like, this is mostly just people sitting down and talking. So there's so little action going on that sometimes I found the addition of the movement of the camera to really like, it didn't distract me and it still allowed me to focus on the person talking But I thought they did some really interesting, subtle things with who else they're bringing into the shot when that camera is panning around. Where I remember another shot where Judy Garland playing Irene Hoffman walks in and the camera is looking at her dead on coming in through the door as she's being brought in to take the stand. And you can see the reflection of the ardent Nazi judge who... I think he was the one who he was can, the prosecutor. He was the prosecutor in the in trial. Case. Yeah. And you can see a side profile reflection in the plexiglass of him in the same shot. And I was like, that is really well done because it's giving yeah. you his, his hard expression as she's walking in, but it's not like calling a ton of attention to it. So I don't know. You guys know more about it than me. And you're more familiar with old films for the most part. I found it innovative and cool and it kept me more engaged for something that is just mostly listening to conversation no i would agree i think that this is again and we've talked about it a little bit already but 
this is a pretty transitional period for movies. Mm-hmm. This is a, a, a time when you do have a lot of that old school acting style still and some of the old school writing style, but it has the, the filmmaking is starting to progress beyond in some places where the acting has gotten to. But when you're talking about somebody like Marlon Brando or Montgomery Clift, these, these method folks, it's really the, the filmmaking techniques are catching up with what they were doing with acting. But a lot of the acting and a lot of the writing is still stuck in like the 40s and early 50s. Who the hell do you think you're talking to? Well, and I think there's some purposefulness to it for sure, right? Because there is. Yeah, absolutely. This is in black and white. There's a touch of having, you know, playing too much with your new toys with some of these techniques. But mm-hmm. it's not like it's not over the top. It's it's only noticeable to people who are like looking for that, I would say. Personally, I think it ages a little bit better than the shaky cam and saving private Ryan. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. Okay. For me, it seems less obtrusive and it's less pervasive throughout. Yeah, if anything, it is like you said, you just kind of get that nod of like, mm, you could do a crash zoom now. So you are going to use that as, you know, as Hey, this could be a good spot for that. And it is in some cases, but then you just get a little too over over eager about it. And once you filmed it, it's hard to go back. So, it, but it's, it doesn't take you out of it. You're not like, oh, yeah, what is this? Well, you know? with film, it's a blocking. The camera movements are a blocking thing. So when you're doing a stage play, you have to look out for the same things, but it's with how you're moving your people. You're like, oh, I just had them cross up above the table. Do I really want to have them cross up above the table in a circle again? I'm getting kind of repetitive. Like you have to look out for those sort of things. Right. But sometimes it feels natural and that's the way that it works best in that scene. But you just did it. So you have to kind of balance out. Do you want to Mm -hmm. go back to that well again? I also have to say that objectively, and I didn't realize this until 90% of the movie was over, but for me personally, I've talked about how I feel about black and white and how I'm like, sometimes it takes me out of it because I know that the characters and the actors in the situation are living this experience in full color and we're experiencing it in black and white. And so it reminds me that it's a film. I basically did not realize this film was in black and white until 90% of the way through. I was like, oh shit, this has been in black and white the whole time, which I think is a testament to how engaging it is because it's just the acting and the dialogue is delivered so well. I personally really liked the writing. I think, yes, it does go into melodrama, but I think like what better reason could you possibly have to write something that delivers a little bit of melodrama? Because I never found it hammy or cheesy I just felt they were delivering on what they were trying to do. I mean, Shell's performance is amazing, but there's also times where he's giving you that kind of aggressive German, like Hitlery vibe when he's yelling, where I was like, oh man, that is an intense choice, considering that so many Americans' opinion of German language and how it is delivered is from listening to Hitler speeches. And you're like, German's really aggressive. And it's like, I mean, kind of, but also go listen to some poetry and like music and readings of other things that aren't Hitler giving a rally speech. It doesn't all sound like Rammstein. No, exactly. No, exactly. exactly. Well, and I think the the choice of black and white is very specific to, especially for audiences at the time, is because color probably would have been most of the norm at this point in 1961. So... So for audiences at the time watching this, it would have been like, we're we're going back, you know, a decade. Oh, boy. 
Oh, Katie's trying to do decade math. I hate decade <laughs> math. I'm so bad at it. Uh, you know, this is supposed uh, 10, to be... 12 years, yeah. It's like yeah, 12, 13 just... years at this point, right? Right. So you are supposed to be going back a little bit, and that use of black and white kind of helps the audience go back to that time instead of the incredibly tumultuous time that they are, are living through at this point. They're going back to a different incredibly tumultuous time and the black and white helps to bring them back there. Because it's not like the fashion is super different yet. It's not like the suits and stuff have, this isn't a 40 year difference. This is right. still relatively close. Right. So like it's a, it's a period piece, even for the people at the time, just very much less. So just a decade or whatever. It's like the wedding singer. Right. There we go. Perfect <laughs> example. Very serious movie. Very serious movie. Please get out of my Van Halen t-shirt before you jinx the band and they break up. But yes, it uses that because you can't differentiate with clothes or buildings or something like that. Differentiating with that black and white is really a great way to give your audience perspective on where this film is coming from. Yeah. The other thing that I uh, definitely puts it firmly back in that 1948 time, but also, and I think one of the reasons why this movie has to be in black and white is for the newsreel footage for the film, real footage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I think if you do this movie in color, but that footage is still was shot in black and white and is still showing in black and white, I think that would put too much historical distance between the film and that film reel footage. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, we're in color. This is in black and white. We're real. That's not. I, I think it was a really good choice. I don't know if that was the reason they did it, but that would be the reason that I would do it because you have to have that not seem like something that isn't in the world of the movie. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. And uh, my last comment on the black and white, and I don't, it's going to, the timing's going to be tight, so I'm not 100% sure when the Adolf Eichmann trials were televised in black and white in Israel by a French production. But if you're familiar with the story, which um, Ben Kingsley did Operation Finale, or he, he played Eichmann in Operation Finale recently for Netflix uh, with Oscar Isaac, that's a really good movie. We'll cover that at some point. But essentially, it's the story of the Mossad or the early version of the Mossad going to Argentina and kidnapping Adolf Eichmann, taking him back to Israel and then doing the first trial of a high ranking Nazi in Israel where he was confronted by some of the families of his victims. That was happening when this movie came out and a French documentarian filmed all of it and they broadcast that trial it might have even been live, or but it certainly was current um, at the time. And you can, I think it's on YouTube, you can watch that whole documentary too, which is fascinating. So whether that came out just slightly before or slightly after this, that would have all been in black and white. And so, yeah, again, either fortuitously or on purpose, it kind of makes sense and fits with the theme, I think. All right, so we almost always take a moment to acknowledge the acting in the films we talk about. In this one, I think it really rises to the top because there are so many powerhouse performances by so many famous actors at the time. And I was personally blown away by many of them. It's the first thing that stuck out to me, especially after just last night covering Llamageddon <laughs> with Liam on Frank Club, where the acting was quite the opposite of this film. <laughs> It was, the, it was the other kind of acting. It was the trash? 
was the trash, wasn't it? Sorry, this uh, this topic's a little serious, so we're going to have to insert some jokes here and there just to lighten it up. But I am very curious to hear from you guys who, again, are more familiar than me with old films and these actors. What did you guys think of the acting and the performances? Real quick, before we jump into that, I have to ask you, Dan, how many of these, because this is packed to the gills with people. Apart from William Shatner, how many of these people was this like the first Spencer Tracy that you've seen or the first Montgomery Clift or what have you? Spencer Tracy was in the monkey trial movie. Yes, he was in Inherit the Wind. Okay, I've seen Inherit the Wind a long time ago. No, that was done by Stanley Kramer, too. Oh, no shit. Cool. Uh, Because I was reading about him today and I was like, oh, he did that, too. Oh, that's crazy. But I was like a child. I, we must have seen that in school. I'll bet you they played that for us in middle school or something. Probably. So that's probably the first time I had seen him. Burt Lancaster, I have only seen on this show in Seven Days in May. Judy Garland, I had not seen since The Wizard of Oz, and that's the only thing I've ever seen her in. I mean, <sighs> I, I know of other things she's been in, and I know she's famous, despite the fact that she died very young. Well, not very young, but before her time. Yeah. 47? Yeah. That's pretty damn young. Not like 27 Club. Hollywood was rough living then. 47 was a pretty good age to reach in those days, honestly. All right. I guess if you're like a very addicted alcoholic, sure. So she considering yeah. how much she was doing at the time. Those were city miles. Yeah. <laughs> sure. But for me, the contrast was like Dorothy at age 17 or however old she was mm-hmm. to like somewhat middle-aged. Yes. Judy Garland, and I was like, oh, wow, okay. But of course, I recognized her still. And she hadn't worked in seven years. Like, this was this was at the point where Hollywood was starting to freeze her out because she was considered too old and, you know, frumpy and all of that. She was still a powerhouse actor, as you can see in this, but mm-hmm. it had been a long oh, time yeah. since she'd worked. She delivers. But yeah, Liam, to answer your question, outside of things we have covered in this show, I think Spencer Tracy... And Judy Garland are the only actors I had seen before in anything else. Okay, so the acting is central to the success of this film, partially because of what it is. A courtroom drama requires strong character performances, high emotion, the ability to give intense speeches and make it seem realistic. And most of these folks got that. I mean, even William Shatner. Who is definitely like, this is very early on in his career. He- oh, and sorry, of course I had seen William Shatner in things before if I didn't say it out loud. <laughs> That's what I said, like apart from William Shatner. Yeah, it, yeah. I've seen Halloween, you know. Dan starts watching this and he texts me, is that William fucking Shatner? How like, handsome he handsome is. handsome captain. <laughs> like, oh, uh, yes. I Paul came up halfway through, or about, about half an hour, 45 minutes into me watching this. And he's like, is that William Shatner? Oh, my God. So he had the same reaction. I was like, I guess so, man. He's, you know, he did stuff before Star Trek. He was quite the snack. He was. He was. This is definitely like Twilight Zone era Shatner. Mm-hmm. And he was about, yeah, about 28 in this. The performances are all fantastic. And I, I think Spencer Tracy, which here's where I'll get into my quibble since we're talking about acting. So Maximilian Schell won Best Actor for this. And as someone who worked in Oscar prediction world, which is a crazy world, folks, let me tell you. That is some, uh, what do they call it, Liam? Some gaming the system when they're oh. like, yeah, this guy's totally oh, the- category fraud. 
Yeah, category fraud. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I was but like- normally it works the other way. Like a similar instance would be Christoph Waltz being best supporting actor in Django Unchained. Yeah. When he's in like 80% of the movie as one of the two central figures. Right. So I'm sorry, right. just to be an audience proxy here, we're talking about Maximilian Schell being a supporting actor yet winning best actor in this? Is that yes, what you're talking about? correct. Okay. Correct. Because he's definitely he's not- He's in a lot of the movie, though. He's in a lot of the movie, but he's not the protagonist. At times, he is very much the antagonist, both for the prosecution and to yawning himself. But the real crux of the matter, especially in Oscar land, is that the category is- Best actor in a leading role. Right. Right. And there were a lot more loosey goosey about that back then. Yeah, for it sure. would, this is when a lot of these these uh much like the trial, uh, this was when a lot of those precedents were kind of being set. Right. It wasn't necessarily like firmed up. You didn't say, Oh, well, we did this this way for this many years and so on and so forth. I mean, this isn't like the Academy wasn't brand new. Right. God, so no. it wasn't like the Wild West that you got like back when they're like, well, there are two best pictures. There's best artistic production. Yes. And then this other thing like you know, they had like <laughs> we're just making shit up as we go along. Go back and look at the Oscar categories from like 1929. It's fucking <laughs> stupid. But <laughs> they were like, we want to acknowledge these people. How do we make categories to fit that? That is that is what they were doing. And this movie, I'm fine with it because, yes, today he would be yeah. considered a Best Supporting Actor nomination, if for no other reason that when you're in as much of the movie as he is, it's a lot easier to edge out some smaller performances uh-huh. in other movies. So you have a better chance. For real. Like, it would almost be category fraud the other way if he were nominated for Best Supporting Actor today because it is such a big role. And this is such an ensemble cast. In a lot of respects. And last quick clarification, not that it applies directly to Shell necessarily, but can an antagonist win best actor nowadays or with that? Oh, yeah. They can. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's not necessarily supporting just because you're not the protagonist. Right. No, like Javier Bardem would totally have been a justifiable best actor in. um... No Country. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Honestly, probably should have been, but phenomenal performance. Yeah, Bardem is fantastic in that and in, in everything. Yeah, but I mean, it, and again, this is one that you're talking accusations of category fraud. Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs won Best Actor when arguably he was a supporting role. Oh, totes, totes. But for this movie, I think for me it was really you know MVP for this was Spencer Tracy. Hmm. And Spencer Tracy is doing a very specific role here, right? That I feel is a little too flat, honestly. He's just a little too affable, a little too introspective about it. Well, he was also, at this point, he was also having trouble. He was at an age where he was having trouble remembering his lines. Oh, okay. He died a year or two after this film. Yeah, this was really late in life for him. So there were points where he would actually have like his lines on the desk in front of him, that kind of thing. Okay. Okay. Then that makes, that makes sense. Truth be told, I've never been a Spencer Tracy stan. Like I've enjoyed him and things plenty, but like, I just, I, I never quite got on the Spencer Tracy bus. Hmm. I like him. I like him in very specific things. I like him in this. 
My favorite random weird little scene is when he goes to get the sausages. Yes. And Mm -hmm. that very, very attractive (laughs) woman is just looking at him and... Batting her eyes. Ma'am, I'm not sure if you're looking at him like, oh, he reminds me of my grandpa or, oh, I'm flirting with the older man. And then when she gives that, I'll feed her saying, opa, which I, I knew what that meant. I was like, oh, okay, that makes much more sense. I wouldn't have liked this movie... I would have liked this movie a lot less if it had been the other thing rather than look at this sweet old man having a sausage type. Right. But that really summed up my feelings on his character type. Do you understand English? Yes, a little. What did she say? She said goodbye, Grandpa. Yeah, I mean, a lot of his performance is internal also because... Which he gives great facial expressions. That's true. But I also think like... The character is very internal. Mm-hmm. Like he's walking around Nuremberg looking at the destroyed buildings and thinking like, wow, how did we get to here? And he's a country bumpkin. I mean, he's a judge, like he's no dummy, but this is his second time outside of the US ever. So he is seeing a little bit of Germany, which he didn't see in the war because he was too old, even though he was in World War One, and that was the last time he was in Germany. As a doughboy, which it would have been an entirely different experience, you know. Right. So you see his contemplative demeanor when he's walking around Germany. And I think even when he's having conversations, like later when Marlene Dietrich's character is asking him, like, is this really what you think of us? You know, and he kind of is just looking at her going, honestly, I don't know what to think. And so I don't know, like, I, I get what you're saying, but I think the character required a very internal performance because it fits with like what that judge would actually be going through at the time. And he's definitely supposed to be the audience surrogate. Yes. Like the neutral Mm. audience surrogate coming into this. And I I think that's a very valid and valuable viewpoint for this film to take as it's like, this is the guy we're following around and whose perspective we are generally seeing things from. Because I think you certainly don't want this from Shell's perspective, right? Right. <laughs> like, that That would be... Uh, you could make that movie in Germany, and it would probably be very interesting and go to a lot of different places than this movie would. But that's not what this movie is interested in. This movie is interested in giving a very specific perspective on these events. And Spencer Tracy does a really good job being that perspective haver for the audience. I hope you're not sorry you came. No, I'm not sorry I came. I just wanted you to know that I know where the body's buried. Let's talk Lancaster. We do have to talk about Bert. So, Dan, as, as this is your second film with him, what did you think? I'm, I'm intrigued. I mean, it's always tough with a role that is not a huge speaking part for most of the movie, right? Because you look at the bailiff and the soldiers who are standing guard and you're like, oh, well, you can turn your brain off for that part. You're just an extra. You don't actually have to do anything because even though they spend a lot of time on those guys actually turning their heads and looking at some of the speakers or watching the Holocaust camp videos because even they can't maintain their composure and they just have to look at the spectacle and they have to look at the atrocity. Whereas normally they're in a military position. They should just be like a thousand yard stare. Whereas Burt Lancaster is like, well, he's quiet most of the time, but clearly he's trying to deliver to the audience. What is he thinking about? And as an audience member, as the viewer, you're supposed to not know. 
for a while, right? right? You're like, right. is he indignant? Does he think this core is a kangaroo core and bullshit? Is he still making up his mind? Is he, which we find out later in the film that kind of that does seem to be the case is that the trial actually caused him to look back and think upon his career as a person who always thought he was an upstanding person, revered and respected amongst his peers in Germany, a person of high moral values who valued justice and who wasn't saying, well, I was just doing my job as an excuse. You know, he's saying it as, no, this is what we felt was good for Germany and for the country. And I was trying to do the best thing for my people, right? Like it's a very, it's a very high moral ground, what he is thinking initially. And then he kind of changes his mind and accepts the fact that he was wrong by the end when he gives a speech. So I think as an actor, he's trying to deliver all of those gears going in his head as he's watching the witnesses and watching the prosecution and the defense without actually saying anything, which is kind of like, if you got a good neutral delivery, maybe it's an easy role for you. But for me as a non-actor, I think that's a really hard role because you're thinking about how you're coming off without talking the entire time. That is not the performance I got from Lancaster in this. Okay. What'd you get? From what I saw in him, because, right, you have that first initial moment where he says, you know, I'm not going to recognize the uh, validity of this court. I won't be represented. And I, uh, to me, from the end of the film, looking back, to me, that is someone who is in despair and has already internally decided to give up, almost, face judgment, and has is trying to reckon with the gravity and magnitude of of their decisions because he has that conversation where he's like well i consented to allow you know this guy to try to defend my name or whatever but then i saw him hammering on this witness who had already gone through all of this and then is when he puts a stop to it what else do you admit to mrs what else hello are we going to do this again I already contributed to this once. And if I allow there to be this justification, then I am contributing to it again. And I think he's obviously a man who cares a lot about his country. And he's thinking the best thing I can do is just not participate. I don't want to deal with any of this shit anymore. I'm just going to block out life. And then he sees he's being used and he steps up and says something. So that was my perspective on it because, and then he's, a, oh, that last scene, which we'll get to. That's, that was, that I think is my favorite of, because there's so much facial acting in this, right? Like, especially from Lancaster, because like you said, Dan, he, he barely talks during the movie. We really only get that one good speech and then the end scene. But his face throughout it is so like overly powdered, first of all. <laughs> Beyond that, it becomes more and more expressive as time goes on and allows you more and more into the character's motivations and who this person is just through his face and how he reacts to his fellow prisoners. That to me was incredibly telling as to where he sat on this whole issue. When you see that scene between the four uh, justices that are on trial. I thought it was really smart from a narrative perspective to add John Wengraff's performance as Dr. Carl Vike who is the judge who resigned. Yeah. And so he's his peer. He's his equal. 
But he's like, I saw what was happening and I thought it was wrong. And I quit the bench because I wouldn't stand for it. And that they start the movie out like that. Eventually. Sure, eventually. But I mean, that was a good contrast for Yawning's character to be like, well, you could have done that, but you didn't. So like that, I thought that was nicely set up from a narrative point of view. Mm -hmm. No, So I think Ernst Yawning does go through a bit of an arc. There's a line that Rolf has to Yawning at one point that I think is kind of one of the turning points in early turning points in Yawning's character. Okay, so which scene is it in? It's the scene when Rolf says to him, let's see if they have the courage to sit in judgment of a man like you. Oh, so this is that first convo they're having in jail? Okay. Because it's after he's lodged a formal complaint in lieu of pleading because he does not Mm -hmm. recognize the authority of the tribunal. So you have that, which sounds like a guy who doesn't think that he did necessarily anything wrong. Like he's the hardcoreist Nazi of them all. Right. Or just as a legal mind doesn't acknowledge their right to be sitting in judgment of him. Right. Then Rolf says that to him out loud. And he does. He's not a big fan of Rolf. <laughs> no. And so hearing Rolf praise him is, I think, a little grating to him. But also he starts to see the people that he's being painted with the same brush as. Right, these three guys who he's on trial with who are just every other example of shitty. Like, he's so focused on himself to start, and then things start to happen during the course of the trial and during the course of his incarceration that he just starts to look around and see where he is and really examine it from the outside. And I think that's what... So I do think that he goes from being fairly full of himself to brought pretty low. And humbled and despairing by the end. What would you say, Liam, as an actor? What's your professional opinion? Pretty tough role, what Lancaster had to do? Yes and no. It really depends on the actor. Okay. And Burt Lancaster, I think he's done a lot more interesting roles than this. A lot more nuanced performances. Mm -hmm. This, it's like, okay, Burt, in this one, we need you to be quiet, Burt. Okay, in this scene, I need you to be loud, Bert. And then in this scene, I want you to start out quiet, Bert, and then get loud, Bert, and then come back down to quiet, Bert. Like, so there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of that. So it's, it's fairly. But is there, because the director was kind of on the record as saying that he was so impressed with the casting and with the talent that he had uh, on the set. That he actually didn't give that much direction. The I'm main- not saying that comes necessarily from the director. <laughs> just from himself. Just from, okay. like Okay, be loud, Bert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it's, what's in his head, all right. He's just in his own head. telling him whether it's himself, whether it's the director, whether it's the whether it's somebody in wardrobe. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, somebody is telling him, all right, now we need quiet, Bert. Now we need loud, Bert. Like, because we... You see a lot of the same tones and levels in Seven Days in May. Yeah, yeah, definitely. His defiant and whatever. There's sort of this phase. It's not sweet smell of success, Burt Lancaster. And it's not, truth be told, like, I I do have affection for him. I'm not a huge Burt Lancaster fan from his acting standpoint. I think a lot of times he's fine. But, like, 
Mm-hmm. He's either being big, loud Burt Lancaster or super quiet Burt Lancaster. And in this, we get both, which is great. Right. We get a variety of Lancaster. We do. We do. And it's funny because there's like so many people in this who I love this performance, but I'm also not a huge fan of the, like Spencer Tracy. I could take or leave Spencer Tracy a lot. Burt Lancaster, kind of the same. Montgomery Cliff, on the other hand. Oh. Fucking love Montgomery Cliff. Yeah. Yeah, that was a hell of a performance. He reminds me. I feel like that is who the Coen brothers based that kid off of in Hail Caesar. Hobie Doyle? Yes. I feel like I, I watched that guy and I was like, oh, I know that guy. And I looked him up. I was like, yep, I know this dude. And I watched his performance. I was like, this is who the Coens based Hobie after. Because hmm. he definitely has a kind of similar career trajectory. And in this, he just fucking rocks it. In the most upsetting way possible. Oh, it's so hard. He appeared in this movie for free. Really? Yes. He he did this movie with without compensation, officially. Kind of for free. I mean, a lot of the actors in this, due to the cultural relevance of the topic and the seriousness of it, took a much smaller fee than they would normally take to do this film. Montgomery Cliff didn't take a fee for the acting He just basically was like, but just pay my expenses. And then he proceeded to have an open bar tab, like for the entire three months of shooting. And he invited all his friends to drink. So it kind of ended up being a loss for the studio because I think he got paid more than he would have had he gotten paid. Oh, my God. And it turns out he was basically drinking like a fish the entire time. Yes. Uh, the trivia basically says he had an orange juice carton that he mostly dumped out and just refilled with vodka. And he was just drinking that the whole time. So yeah, always interesting to think of actors being intoxicated and delivering a specific type of performance in this particular case, he pulls it off and it's a great performance. Well, Montgomery Cliff also like fabulously interesting life, incredibly, incredibly tragic. Yeah, yeah. As as were a few of the people in this. Best friends with Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, boy. For a long time. He was almost killed in a terrible, terrible car accident mm. when he was leaving Elizabeth Taylor's house drunk. Of course. With Brian, no seatbelt. The whole story is just like uh, this wild ass shit with like Liz Taylor with Montgomery Clift bleeding out in her lap, just like fucking inches from death and her just like offering diamonds off of her neck to somebody to drive him to the hospital for like, just (laughs) fucking like crazy shit only in Hollywood. And he never really fully recovered after that physically, mentally, his career just, he was in chronic pain. He was a drinker well before, but like after that, I don't think it, I don't think it ever, ever got better for him. But yeah, he just fucking walks in and nails it in this movie. So tragic. So tragic. This is the first witness that we get to see. Victim. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He's. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That we get to see Hans Rolf just try to eviscerate. Yeah. But also he knows. I don't think he's without sympathy for him. I, yes, I get that. And I, I think this is one of those defense attorney things, which is why it's like, that's why we have to get into it. Maximilian shell nails this so hard, such a good performance because like you can see him not want to do 
a lot of the things that he's doing, but he's like, mm-hmm. look, the line of defense is that there were reasons that they did these terrible things according to the law. And he's saying that it's because he was a communist. However, like there was probably another reason that was written into the books that like is why this guy was sterilized. Right. And I do want to get more into the, the actual arguments in this after we talk about the acting, because I think that's really the interesting crux of this. But, and I think shell just, perfectly there's a reason he won best actor yes like he perfectly encapsulates all of the different factions and situations that are pulling on this case from the cold war aspect to trying to find a way for germany to continue forward with dignity you know also there's certainly an interesting level of how he treats Yanning versus how he treats all the other ones. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't talk about them. He doesn't give a shit about them. He is kind of obviously portrayed as that's the only one that he's really fighting for because that's the only one he has respect for. Right. But also, if he can't, like, he's also the one that he could probably save. Yeah, right. You know, exactly. like, he's really the only one that it's like, no, we can keep this one, right? Like, just let us have this guy. It's fine. You guys get three out of four. I'll take this one. It'll be good. <laughs> it's just like only one of these guys has a chance. Because he never talks about the culpability in specifics of these other men. It is only about Yanning because he knows that that's his best chance. And then we can kind of extrapolate that out from Yanning to these other men. Mm-hmm. And that's the angle he's going for, which, you know, he's a defense attorney. Defense attorneys have a hard job. And I am not one of those people who believes that defense attorneys are inherently bad for doing their job. I believe that people who are accused of crimes deserve a full-throated and vigorous defense. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole concept here. Even a Nazi war criminal, or at least part of the machine, still deserves due process and all the legal rights that everybody else does. The defense calls Irene Hoffman of to the stand. So, Judy Garland in this is masterful i think she doesn't do a whole lot she's only in a few scenes but she gives it her best in all of those scenes and i think the thing for me that was the most upsetting is how crushingly unfair even this tribunal is treating her where it's acceptable for that man to just continually scream at her. What else did you do? You. It's such a telling point that her distress over that is so not a consideration. Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, I'm glad that people step in because the entire argument is here is basically were you or were you not a Jew loving hoe? Like, that's kind of the argument the show is making. And I'm like, oh, my God, how can we stop this? Like, why is this guy being allowed to make this argument again? Right. So, again, getting into the political arguments of it, which I'm sure we're going to talk about this case again. But Mm -hmm. the question is, was what they did illegal under the laws of Nazi Germany at the time? And that's what Burt Lancaster brings up later when he was like, He's raised the specter again. Like maybe we were doing everything for, for the right reasons. Maybe, maybe the old Jew did sleep with the 16 year old girl after all. 
sure, maybe he did, but it doesn't matter whether he did or not, because that wasn't why we were doing it. Right. And you were going to convict both of them, regardless of what the truth was, right. and he admits to that. Well, no, I think that the bigger part in that for me of where Judy Garland is and why I, I'm really glad they included this character is because she refuses to say, yeah, I fucked this guy or he raped me or whatever, because she could have easily, easily gotten out of jail by just saying, yep, yep, he he manipulated me into sex, he took advantage of me. whatever. Yeah, that's a good point. And she refuses to do that. She says, I cannot lie. I can't get up there and do this. And that, to me, is also a big addition to a lot of these. We hear a lot of Germans in the film, but, you know, a lot of these character German characters in the film saying, well, I didn't know what was going on. Well, I I didn't know. And she kind of refuses to participate in that. Even now, later, when it's been explained to us that if she does this, There are going to be consequences for her to continue to stand up for this old man who was so kind to her. Who is now dead. Yeah, who was murdered. Yeah. Murdered by the Nazis for just just because, uh, you know, and that is based on an entirely true situation. That is actually the Katzenberger trial, which was exactly a leading Jewish businessman of Nuremberg This was how they got him, because he had this relationship, this friendly, not sexual... Some kind of connection with Relationship with a young woman who lived in one of the buildings that he owned, whose parents had died, who he goes and checks on, which in the Jewish community, that's a big part of it. They go and they check on their friends and they take care of each other and they help each other. And even though she's not Jewish, he'd obviously taken some kind of like liking to this girl and he wants to support her. Mm -hmm. And... He was sentenced to death on 14th of March, 1942. Lehman Katzenberger is who this film is actually talking about. Yeah. uh, If we didn't mention it explicitly before, this is basically a fictional dramatization based on a lot of real things. Obviously, we know that this trial happened, that the Holocaust happened, etc. But I mean, the actual characters... Like Ernst Yawning is not a real person. Right. right but right. he's a composite of several German judges. So the stories and the background of what they're pulling from here is all based on reality. So it's one of those things where it's mm-hmm. fictional, but you can kind of watch it as if it were real because the themes and the beats of it are real in that it, they're that all extent. based in reality exactly exactly yes so and judy garland gives this like very nuanced performance of a very very difficult role i teared up when she was screaming and crying i was like "Ooh, man this is rough she's a great ugly crier apparently i read she was so happy to have been cast in this that it took a lot for her to cry oh no <laughs> That's- like it was a, it was hard for her to cry because she was like, I've got a role in Hollywood again. And it was a big role. Did somebody get Louis B. Mayer in there to kill her puppy in front of her or whatever he used oh, to do. What do you want to do? Because they used to do that shit to Judy Garland when she was little. They'd be like, oh, we're going to kill your puppy. And like just to get her to cry on cue. Oh, Jesus. Well, because yeah. she was also on too much meth to, you know, have feelings at the time. So Right. Studio was just like, here, stay awake for three days. Yeah, she asked Maximilian Schell 
to really lay into her. She was like, no, no, really yell at me. And when they were done filming, because she was only there for a week or something, like she did, obviously her role is small. She sent him like a card or a gift basket or something. And it said, thank you for being so mean to me. (laughs) (laughs) That is is Garland to a T. To a T. That was pretty good. Uh, So speaking of reality, Marlena Dietrich is an interesting person and actress to be playing this particular role. You guys want to talk about that for a second? Yes. Liam, take (laughs) us away. Take it away. Marlena Dietrich was a staunch anti-Nazi. Oh, yeah. And she was German. She was German. Yes. She was born in 1901 in Schoenberg, Germany. So she would have been... You know, very, very aware of World War One. Yes. She had been around for all of it. She was also one of the most legendary sexual Olympians in all of Hollywood history. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Woo! And I could see why I was like, I'm a fan myself at this woman. And this is her like towards the end of her career. Mm-hmm. Like she'd been around yep. for some time now. She was what you would call a notorious bisexual back in the day. Oh, okay. Ugh, have I have yes. I not told you guys about this before on another episode? I mean, you don't need to tell me. I'm familiar with Marlena Dietrich, but let's let's enlighten Dan to the glories of her. Dan. She was so good in bed that she was like border like like a patron saint of sex. Mm-hmm. Like there there were times that <laughs> no shit. Like she was at a party and this guy that she knew was looking really depressed. I think his wife had left him or something like that. And she asked the host, she was like, what's up with him? He's like, oh yeah, man, he's been real down. And we're like, we're all real worried about him. We think he might kill himself. And she's like, I got this. And like takes him to a cabin for two weeks, fucks his brains out. And he turned his whole (laughs) ass life around. Like legendary status. So a hero, a, a true hero. With or without mm-hmm. the cape. Speaking of which, World War II breaks out. Marlena Dietrich has a plan. Mm-hmm. She goes to the studio and she's like, hey, I have an idea. What I'm going to do is I'm going to leave Hollywood and I'm going to make a big deal out of it. And I'm going to go home to Germany. Being like, hey, we're at war. I have to side with my German people. And I'm going to go back to Germany a big hero and I'm going to renounce the United States and I'm going to like, just make a big, big thing of it. And I'm going to meet Hitler and I'm going to fuck him. And while I'm fucking him, I'm going to kill him. This is going to work. Oh, if only Hitler hadn't been like a weirdly sexually repressed idiot. Right, but Marlena Dietrich could have could have punched through any wall with her sexuality. I feel like I would I'd put my money on. Oh, this movie needs this alternate history movie needs to be made. They were like, you can't do it. They'll kill you. And she's like, I don't care. You still have family in Germany, Marlena. They will kill your family too. And she was like, fine, I won't do it. That's one of my favorite Marlena Dietrich stories is that she had a secret plot to go back and basic instinct Adolf Hitler. See, I, this is where Tarantino fucked up. This should have been a character in Inglorious <laughs> Bastards. That's how Hitler should have died in that right? movie. <laughs> That's, but yeah, so I was actually thinking about that while I was watching it this time around being like, man, would have been a very different movie if she had gone with her plan. Yeah. And, 
and interesting, you know, she's playing a aristocratic German who's on the other side of the argument in this. So that must have been really fascinating to be in her head playing this role. Although she is also playing an aristocratic German who also hated Hitler. Right. The good kind of German. Well, sure. Except that's where we run into the Valkyrie problem. Yes. Where we haven't covered Valkyrie yet. But it's like if you look at Stauffenberg, which is a classic example of this, he sort of represented the aristocrats who were anti-Hitler and Mm -hmm. tried to kill him and tried to depose him. When we talk about this film, this will come up. The problem, though, is that they were also anti-Jews. Yes. So they just didn't want Hitler in charge. But they were like, but getting rid of the Jews is good. So it's Because like, Hitler was virulently anti-aristocrat. Yeah, because he, he had wasn't. been shunned by the aristocrats. And he yes. wasn't one of them. Yeah, so... And- Previous German society was highly stratified. Right. But this is why being an anti-Hitler German, if you're an aristocrat at this time, is not a simple thing, right? Yeah, it doesn't carry as much water as you think it does. That bucket is a whole lot smaller. Right. Yeah. But, you know, in, in these films and especially during this war... It's it's nice and clean to be able to be like, oh, good, you're anti-Hitler. You're one of the good guys, you know, and that's just kind of where they leave it. They have other shit to deal with in this film. But I think Dietrich really interrogates that. I There are some lines in this that she says in her reactions that really betray her actual sensibilities. I think in one of her last conversations with Judge Haywood, where she brings up that Colonel Lawson showed them his footage. I saw Mr. Perkins today. He told me they showed those pictures in the courtroom. Colonel Lawson's favorite pictures. He drags them out at any pretext, doesn't he? Colonel Lawson's private chamber of horrors. And I thought to myself, ma'am, that is not his chamber of horrors. That is your chamber of horrors. You are part of the people who did that, not him. He's the one who liberated these folks. And he is showing this for a very specific reason. And her kind of, I get her feelings on this. You know, that was her husband that he prosecuted and all this, that and the other thing. But it speaks volumes, her insistence that her husband didn't do anything wrong, that regular, quote unquote, Germans didn't know what was going on. She literally both sides is the Holocaust. Exactly. She actually says exactly. things were done on both sides. She does. They hanged my husband instead of shooting him, which is just the same. You don't deserve a noble death when that's who you're working for, man. Sorry. Not sorry, actually. In the very dramatic and heartrending moments where she's saying, I begged, I went to every official that I could, and I begged for them to shoot my husband and give him an honorable soldier's death, but they just hung him like everybody else. And I was like, damn, imagine the mindset you have to be in because either you've just accepted reality and you know he's going to be executed, so what's the point in fighting that? Or somewhere in the subconscious, you've also accepted that he's kind of getting what he deserves, but you're just begging for them to shoot him instead of hang him. And I was like, wow. What kind of space are you at in your mind when you have to go beg somebody to shoot your husband in those very specific circumstances? Like, that is an intense position to be in. 
normally a person would be begging for someone's life and begging for someone to not yeah. kill your husband rather than what method they're using. And I, I thought that was a very poignant moment. But that's also speaks to the aristocratic sense where it's just like an honorable death, an honorable death. You know, it's like, I, I would like you to cut my head off with a sword instead of an ax. Right. Because a sword indicates it, it allows me to keep my status yeah. even in death. That's yeah, it is very uh, old school. You know, she's obviously given this very old school upbringing because she's an aristocrat, which definitely at the time would have been a very fading thing in Germany. And you know, she's doing all of the right things. She's trying to rebuild Germany and show the Americans that they aren't all Hitler and all that, this, that, and the other thing. But I think for me, the most telling point is when she says, we just need to forget. But one can't live with hate. I know that. Damn. We have to forget. We are to go on living. It's like you cannot, you cannot just move on. Mm -hmm. You cannot forget, as is very clearly laid out by Yawning when he says, if I just allow this to be an argument that lets me win my freedom, I am just as complicit as I was before. It is not easy to tell the truth. But if there is to be any salvation for Germany, we who know our gift must admit it, whatever the pain and humiliation. One of the people who we haven't talked about is Richard Woodmark. Oh, that's right. Lawson. Oh, he's. And the reason why I find it interesting is he typically played the heavy. Right? He played the bad he guy. He usually plays the bad guy in a lot of his movies. You can tell in this performance. You can tell, but it's also interesting. I feel like this movie, in a lot of respects, leans Rolf. Mm -hmm. I think Max Million Shell is giving a more nuanced performance than Richard Watermark. And I don't know if that's just my perception of their acting abilities, but I feel like the movie is leaning towards Rolf's argument. I think it's trying to give weight to Rolf's greater arguments. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, I think that's why it's doing that. Whereas Lawson decides like, we're going to show some Holocaust footage. And then I'm going to directly tie these people's decisions to the individuals that we are seeing die on screen in front of us. That's a pretty basic argument. You condemned these people to death. You sent them to the concentration camps. This is what happened at the concentration camps. Therefore, you are partially responsible for what took place. An easy argument to make, especially as the, you know, he's being portrayed as the guy who, I, I think it's specifically mentioned that he helped liberate Dachau. Yeah. Or Dachau. I thought you said the cow. I was like, there's a cow in this movie? What? No. And that cow's been liberated. <laughs> yes, that cow was. So I, I don't know that he needs a super nuanced performance. I think, in fact, his intensity works for the role because he is like, as much as anybody can be said, fighting the good fight to get the people who committed the Holocaust, like, to get punishment for their crimes. Like, it's real hard to say that the, you don't really need nuance in that, you know? But he's also an asshole, which is hilarious to me. 
Yeah. Like that character. A drunk that asshole. That character is a dickhead. Yes. yes. <laughs> to everybody. To everyone. There are no Nazis in Germany. Didn't you know that, Judge? The Eskimos invaded Germany and took over. That's how all those terrible things happened. It, it was, it, speaking of Rolf and the defense attorney here, I thought it was interesting because the nuance with which the script is written shows a attorney that sometimes is making good arguments that make sense, and sometimes they're way more tenuous. Which Which attorney? The defense attorney, so Rolf. So what I'm saying is when he's leaning more towards like, well, we were just following the law. Like, you didn't keep up with your classmates, right? So you were mentally deficient. So that's why we sterilized you. No big deal. And I was like, whoa, dude, you're arguing the wrong thing here. Like, that's right. not a, that's not a that's good not defense a good for the actions, right? Like, you're qualifying well, that you're he... Well, you're dumb, so why can't we sterilize you? You're qualifying that he fit within the confines of the law, but that law was immoral, so it's not a very good argument. Whereas towards the end... When he starts talking about, and again, remember, this is the early 60s. The United States has very weird, not euthanasia laws, but, you know, in terms of eugenics, eugenics, being able to, uh, for men especially, to be able to hospitalize women because they're being hysterical and all of a sudden you're in a mental institution like Roosevelt's uh, cousin, I think that happened to her. Like that's all going on in the US on top of the civil rights movement. And when Rolf starts saying things like, what about Hiroshima and Nagasaki? So his whataboutism when he's talking about the people who enabled Hitler before the war, not mentioned in the film, but the Nazi party being a very active and vocal party in the US in the 1920s mm-hmm. and early 30s before the war. And people, hey, Pittsburgh's full of Germans, right? Like yeah. German newspapers supporting Hitler over here before the Holocaust and all mm-hmm. those things happen. And he lays those arguments out. What about the rest of the world? Did you not know the intentions of the Third Reich? Did you not hear the words of Hitler's broadcast all over the world? Did you not read his intentions in Mein Kampf, published in every corner of the world? Where's the responsibility of the Soviet Union, who signed in 1939 the pact with Hitler, enabled him to make war? Are we now to find Russia guilty? Where's the responsibility of the Vatican, who signed in 1933 the Concordat with Hitler, giving him his first tremendous prestige. Are we now to find the Vatican guilty? And I'm like, that's not what this trial is about, but you're not wrong in the sense that you don't have to be talking about the U.S. during the Vietnam War or during the Iraq War to call out hypocrisy. We kind of tend to think of World War II as this good versus evil, clean cut thing. The Nazis are the bad guys. They did the Holocaust. Everyone who was against the Nazis was good. And it's like, sort of. Where's the responsibility of those American industrialists who helped Hitler to rebuild his armaments and profited by that rebuilding? Are we now to find the American industrialists guilty? No, Your Honor. No. 
this isn't even bringing into it the uh, the internment camps that we put Japanese Americans into. For sure. Right. So right. again, I'm I'm not trying to justify the whataboutism. I'm saying some of his arguments make more sense than other ones. And I'm like, look, this trial is not about what the U.S. did during the war. But I don't think those comments are completely unjustified. And maybe the U.S. should have been in international courts for certain things like our internment camps with the Japanese, like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like the the evidence. If you were to take that to a court of law, and this is something we'll talk about in a separate episode. But when you talk about the evidence for and against, were we justified in ending World War II by dropping A-bombs on Japan? What was the likelihood that we would have had to invade Japan with a land war? Like all of those things have a lot of witnesses and a lot of facts behind them. And you can make those arguments either way, a perfect argument for a court of law. Yet the U.S. never went to an international court on any of this stuff. So again, I'm not trying to compare the Holocaust to that. I absolutely believe German Nazis needed to be on trial and some of them needed to be hanged for the war crimes that they committed. Absolutely. That is the official stance of Danger Close, is that Nazis are bad. <laughs> yeah, we don't, yes. we don't stand by We've any of We've said it before, we'll <laughs> say it again. But no, I think you're right, Dan. There is that. It's fully justifiable to say, what was IBM's complicity in right. this? Because like, it shows the tattoos that those little kids had. That was a system IBM helped the Nazis develop, and IBM was firmly an American company. But IBM also designed the transcription radio headphone system in this right. trial. So there they are helping out. Like, again, right. nothing is cut and dry. And there's always some nuance there. So, And that's that's also in the context of the movie and of the script. It's important where that speech comes in. Right. Exactly. Because that's right after Ernst Yawning's speech where he basically says, nope, I'm guilty. I was responsible this we have all this it's right that you're putting me on trial and he's like dude still has a job to do your honor it is my duty to defend Ernst Janning and yet Ernst Janning has said he's guilty there's no doubt he feels his guilt so it's still like a bit of a Hail Mary pass I think it, he reaches the point when he pushes too far with the Winston Churchill reference. That, to me, was the tipping point of like, okay, you might have like the Vatican making a deal with the Nazis, Soviet Union, blah, blah, blah. Like there, there are he has some like valid points that get increasingly and increasingly further away from the issue at hand. And then he makes this very far out statement. Of like, So in 1938, Winston Churchill makes this like vague yeah, okay, maybe I'm slightly supportive, which I'm familiar with England in 1938, and there was this, like, okay, how are we going to approach this issue? Shit's getting bad. What are we going to do? And then Churchill goes on to wage war, heavy, hardcore war against Germany for years. So bringing up, like, well, Winston Churchill once said something that wasn't completely critical of Adolf Hitler. It's like, well, Okay, but Britain then, like, led the whole effort against taking y'all down, so... Yes, but I think the big-picture argument that Rolf is making here is mm -hmm. that everyone wants to blame the Germans for the Holocaust and for Hitler, and what he's saying is, but look at 
everyone who had to support and not fight Hitler for years and years and years to allow him to get all the power that he accumulated. When he invaded the Sudetenland, nobody stopped him. When he marched into Poland, Chamberlain was like holding up the paper. Now I can't remember the name of it. Peace in our time. And like, we're just going to let Hitler have this territory and then it's going to be fine. So like... Yes, eventually when the UK was backed into a corner, they were like, okay, now we have to firebomb Germany and now we're going to wage war. But his point was Hitler didn't get to where he got all by himself. He had a bunch of appeasers and a bunch of supporters in Germany, but also in the rest of the world. In the least worst cases, it was people who were afraid to start a war and didn't want to engage on that level. In the very worst cases, it was actually people profiting and making deals with Nazi Germany because they're like, well, I'm going to make some money in the meantime, right? So again, all these things are real. They're not made up. So when it comes to subtlety, that's an intelligent thing to bring up as a defense attorney in these war crime trials. Mm -hmm. Well, and I also think, Katie, one of the things that rubs you the wrong way about it is that it's a really good and smart rhetorical trick. You take the soundbite and you put it up without, and you take it potentially out of context. I'm not familiar with that particular quote. Were England to suffer national disaster, I should pray to God to send a man of the strength of mind and will of an Adolf Hitler. But it's, it's Churchill praising authoritarianism is what it right. is. Mm-hmm. But the core thing of this is that it's fucking trollery, right? We are not talking about the actual substance of the issues here. We are not talking about are these particular foremen culpable for their actions in saying you, you, an individual man, you get your balls taken away. You, you woman, you go to jail for two years because you wouldn't support this. So it's this trolly whataboutism that I see even today. It's such a shitty rhetorical Mm -hmm. argument in my mind because it, it completely elides the responsibility in this particular case of the German population at the time. They show a map of Germany in the beginning of those of the most horrific scenes where they are showing footage of the Holocaust and the liberation of camps. They show a map of Germany. Germany, size of New Mexico, right? There were so many camps. They burned bodies like it, it's it's absolutely outrageous to me to make that argument because it's like, OK, I mean, I live in the U.S., a, a country that when I looked it up is 38 times the size of Germany. And I am more than aware of, of the atrocities committed by my own country by within. Yes, but we also live in an entirely different information age. Uh, yeah, sure, but. Sure. It, not as different as as people like to pretend. Their mail was delivered twice a day. You know, like it, it's to elide those people's responsibility is to dismiss the reality of the situation and to. Well, what was I supposed to do? Yeah, I think it's a bad faith argument. Yes. To try and remove responsibility from German authorities for the Holocaust and all the atrocities that they committed as the Nazi government in World War II. Right. But it's not a bad argument to say, shouldn't there be some other trials with some other countries happening (laughs) here as well? Like, if that's what he was trying to do, he's not clearly, he's just trying to defend his clients, right? 
But if he were making that argument, fighting, let's say after this trial, to get the U.S. and Russia or the Soviet I Union and other places in a trial, right. then it would be a good faith, a good on board. argument. Yeah, 100% so. on board. And I think the thing that bothered me the most legally about this is, is that what aboutism is expected. That's a totally like boilerplate defense attorney type shit, mm-hmm. right? Which makes sense. It, it is this... I think to me, the thing that was like, you're real grasping at straws, man, is mm-hmm. is his statement of, well, he saved some Jewish people. He helped oh, right, some right. people. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So he was like, well, I like these folks, so I'm going to protect them. But all the rest of these fuckers can go. His accountant's Jewish. He can't. Yeah. Like- can go die. <laughs> I don't give a shit about them. Like. Mm-hmm. We'll right. let genocide happen for everybody but my favorite people. And to me, it's like, well, you don't get credit for not being a complete shitbag. <laughs> you might only be half a shitbag than uh, Emil Hahn. Like, Emil Hahn is obviously just like... A the, staunch Nazi, yeah. Like, a horrible person, right? Well, I'm only halfway there. It's like, well, I'm none of the way there. So I feel justified in saying you being halfway there is real fucking bad. So that was, I think, the argument to me that really struck out as like, and and I think that was really my biggest criticism is that there isn't enough attention called to the idea that like, well, he did some good stuff. And I'm like, you know what he could have done? What what would it have been if Ernst Janning had left Germany with all of his fame and all of his knowledge and all of his high, you know, whatever, and campaigned against Hitler? Mm-hmm. What would that have looked like? Because he could have done that, too. Right. And that might have made a bigger difference than, well, I really like my doctor. He does good work for me. Like this guy who works for me. I really like him. So let's not send him to jail. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was actually surprised, though, because of reading some critical reviews of the film from the time that were talking about it being ham fisted, overly dramatic oh, yeah, yeah. or or German audiences not liking it, I was expecting to see something that was much more pro-US propaganda. And what I ended up sitting through was something that I thought was actually much more balanced. Because again, for a film made in the US, where clearly the US are the victors here, they're the good guys, we are putting Nazi Germany on trial for the Holocaust here, You could have written Rolf, the defense attorney, to be much more hateable, Mm -hmm. much less intelligent, way more trolly, and without any kind of actual good argument. Now, sure, the rules of writing good dramatic structure would make it so that, aside from the morals, you don't want to do that because it makes it less interesting. But I was surprised to see the arguments that they allowed Rolf to make the arguments that they allowed uh, Mrs. Bertholdt to make because those were nuanced and those were the opinions of German people at the time, some of whom I have no doubt did not know about the Holocaust. Some of them, right? Like it's impossible that everybody knew what was going on. So you're going to get a mix of opinions. And again, you're talking about a devastated country. Like clearly – Jewish people and all the other victims of the Holocaust are the biggest group of victims of this particular situation. But for the next 20, 30 years, Germany's in rubble. It's been firebombed. The Soviets own, you know, half of Berlin. They're all over. Like people are starving. Like it's a 
pretty shitty situation when you lose a war, regardless of whether you started it or not. So like the Germans do have a lot to what's the opposite of looking forward to? Like they have a lot in the future that they're going to have to sort through. And right. They got a big hill to climb to get back yeah. to normality. And in 1948, it sounds ludicrous to say, can we just move on? Because it's like, no, I know you want to move on, but like we need to rectify this. You need to return stolen art and gold teeth. And like, you need to pay for what you've done as a country. That makes sense. But if you look into... Again, other Mossad kidnappings happening in like the 1970s, you'll learn that the political situation in Germany at that time was younger people who were not born and not alive in this time period. They were just children who were petitioning their government at that time to say, hey, we're kind of tired of hearing about the Nazis. We didn't do all that shit. Can we please move on and focus on the economy and like give us jobs and stuff? And they lobbied the German government at that time in the 70s, I want to say, to put a statute of limitations on Nazi war crimes because they were just the new generation was so tired of seeing it. And if you look into that story, the Israeli government was very much against that and fighting against it. Luckily, they won. So Germany never did put a statute of limitations, which is why you can see 93 year old Nazis who get caught now still going to trial. But that's a very real thing when you're talking about the population, right? You're born into a system, you grow up in that system, and then you're like, well, I mean, we live in the I US. Do that. So yeah, right. We are more than exactly. familiar with right? the long term ramifications of your country being a fucking shitty place. And, and how much personal responsibility as the next generation and the next generation can you take on yourself when you didn't participate in any of that? So, again, I think if you move the plot 25, 30 years into the future, some of those arguments start to carry a lot more water. Not in 1948. Like, y'all were here. No. You were part of this system. And even then, there's no need for a statute of limitations. You weren't Nazis. You're not going to get persecuted. Hang on a second. Let me just (laughs) clarify. those people. I am absolutely not arguing for a statute of limitations on Nazis. No, you're not. I'm saying it it makes sense for younger people to be saying, can we please move on? How long do we have to sit on top of the crimes of our ancestors? Until they're all dead. Right. Sure. That's that's until that's how long you got to sit on that until all those people who participated <laughs> in that shit are dead. Right. Like, I can't tell you how many fucking documentaries I've seen and including recent ones where I, I have seen old Germans defend themselves. Mm-hmm. I was doing what was right. It was so long ago. It's like, what the fuck does right? that mean? Because <laughs> it was so long ago. Okay, right, whatever. You know, that's that's the thing is it's fine to say I didn't participate in this and I don't feel I should be persecuted for it. And it's right. entirely something else to say, well, I didn't participate in this and I shouldn't be persecuted for it. And neither should anyone else because I yeah. don't want to hear about it. Right. Anymore. Let's just move on because it's too much of a burden for me to even hear about this. Right. Anyways, that's neither here nor there because that's not what's going on in this film. But it's an extension. It's the start mm-hmm, of it, though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It definitely is. because And as, as portrayed by Marlena Dietrich, where she's. She's making compelling arguments in the moment. And I think the source of her argument in 1948, because yes, it is too soon to be like, can we just call it guys? Like (laughs) 1948 is too soon. However, if you put yourself in the context of trying, you like you're in a city that you grew up in and you loved and it is now rubble around you and you're like, okay, right. So we've got to rebuild. And in the meantime, people keep on coming in saying like, no, you're bad. You're bad. You're bad. And she's like, I'm just trying mm-hmm. to rebuild my city. Like we're in rocks. 
and fallen timbers right. and like just shit fell everywhere around us. And I'm trying to get us to like, come on guys, let's, let's, let's keep on living L I V I N. And it's like, we can't do that if we're always looking backwards. It's hard to live within that space, right? That juxtaposition of you've seen all of these horrible things happen and you have to find a way to move forward. So I don't necessarily blame these people for having those emotions of like, oh, I want to move forward with my life. But also it's like, well, there's a huge reckoning that has to happen because of the overwhelming magnitude of the events that transpired because of the country you live in. I think that's pretty well laid out with Irene Hoffman and her husband who were not in the military and were not in the Nazi party and clearly had connections with Jewish people. But there, he's still like, no, she's not going to come testify. We're trying to move on with our lives. We just opened up a photography shop, which is barely making any money. If she goes and talks in public at this trial and is in these transcripts, people are going to come break all our windows and tell us that mm-hmm. we're bad citizens and blah, blah, blah. Like we can't, we're starving. Like we can't handle that right now. We're trying to move on. So I think for that family, not having a Nazi military background, that argument again, carries more weight. These are all the subtleties of what's going on in this society at that time. Because Irene Hoffman exists in both spaces, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She was both persecuted by the Nazi government and is a German woman who isn't a Jew. Right. A privileged member of society to a certain extent. Uh, Yes. Who, who then had her privilege stripped away because she refused to fall in line. And went to jail. And so she is still also facing all of the blame and uh, hatred that's just kind of left drifting through Germany of how do we handle right. this situation? And she's like, the Nazis put me in prison. I'm a victim too, right? Like right. again. <laughs> Why do I have to be the one to go and say, this is bullshit and mm-hmm. you guys were wrong? Yeah, these people's stories are very nuanced and there are quite a lot of layers happening in this society. It's so heartbreaking. I'll make you a wager. I don't make wagers. (laughs) A gentleman's wager. In five years, the man you're sentenced to life imprisonment will be free. Herr Rolf, I have admired your work in the courtroom for many months. You are particularly brilliant in your use of logic. So, what you suggest may very well happen. It is logical in view of the times in which we live. But to be logical is not to be right. And nothing on God's earth could ever make it right. So, how satisfying did you guys find? that end moment between Spencer Tracy and Burt Lancaster, where Yawning is kind of obviously asking for almost like absolvement. Absolution. Thank you. Like he's asking for this from Haywood and Haywood refuses to give it. And the most crushing moment is we we see that back pan of Burt Lancaster as Yawning's face. It's like slowly crumbling of like, I really am a bad guy. <laughs> and Spencer Tracy is Haywood like, sorry, yeah, you kind of are. I'm not going to give you this absolution you're asking for. Even though both of them have a lot of respect for each other. I thought as I was watching it, I was like, how are they going to end this? And I thought those last couple of minutes really solidify the points that the film is trying to make about what is culpability in this 
once in a world time situation and how do we respond to people who are trying to do their best and so on and so forth. I always actually had like a little bit of a problem with the last scene and it's not so much a problem with the last scene as it is a frustration with the character arc of Ernst Yawning. Oh, really? Tell me more. Because I feel like, and I've always felt like he comes all the way up during the course of the trial to be forth forthcoming and upright and honest about himself and the people that he is on trial with. And he comes clean and he is like, Nope, he takes full responsibility on himself. Mm-hmm. And then in like the last 30 seconds of the movie, he's like, Hey, can I not have this responsibility? I'm just like, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. Like, do you think it uh, speaks to his humanity? Do you think that's why they included that? Is that every human wants that bit of absolution? I don't know. I honestly still don't know why. Because it feels real. It feels so nuanced for that time period, right? Yes and no. Like, it feels like such an about face at the very last moment mm-hmm. that I almost feel like he asks the question just so they can have Spencer Tracy give the answer. Those people those millions of people. I never knew it would come to that. You must believe it. You must believe it. Hey, Yana. It came to that the first time you sentenced a man to death you knew to be innocent. Yeah, yeah. I was fine with the ending, whether it was created so that they could have this poignant moment of him walking away, but it immediately gave me the mirror image of the meaning of this quote, because essentially what they're saying is, look, you you killed one innocent person. You're just as responsible as the people who ended up killing millions of innocent people because you were a cog in that wheel. You got the process started and it poked in my brain at something that I was like, this reminds me of the opposite case. And I had to look it up and I'm not Jewish and I don't study the Torah at all, but apparently it's from the Talmud and it is quote, whoever saves a single life is considered by scripture to have saved the whole world. Something like that is quoted at the end of Schindler's list. And so this is the opposite concept. That is the problem though. I think, I think writing yawning off as a bad person is not only a wrong, B, an oversimplification, but I think it actually takes away from the theme. I think Yanning is a noble, honorable person who has worked hard his whole life for justice and to do the right thing. And yet because of convention and culture and the historical circumstances, he let himself get talked into and then participate in the murder of innocent people. And that is much harder for him to swallow than if he was a shitty dude like the other Nazi who is clearly a shitty Nazi who just is like, no, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's the contrast. And that's the difference is that Yanning and Haywood are not that different of people. They have similar moral standards. They have similar goals in life and they have similarly good hearts except that in the situation that he was put in yawning made 
some poor decisions that are now going to haunt him for the rest of his days. And I think that they depicted that concept well, I think. And so I don't care if it's a little gimmicky or saccharine or if they had to kind of write it in there. But that comment and then having Spencer Tracy walk down that long hallway in the prison, I love that ending. I thought it was really excellent. And now it's time for the breakdown. It's a point in our show where we ask ourselves three questions. What was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Liam, you can go first this time. Sweet. The objective of this film was to really sort of reckon for the first time, I think in cinema with the reality of what happened during the Holocaust. I think this was kind of like the first big mainstream Holocaust film and it happening in such a short period of time after the events, relatively speaking, you know, it it took a while for anybody to say, Hey, we should really deal with this. But there was so much going on in the world that it was, you can't just do a simple like Holocaust bad kind of movie Mm -hmm. with this. So I think it was just trying to pull in as many disparate arguments as possible that as often as possible were good faith arguments for people to be making. This is not a very trolly movie. I don't think as far as like the, the different arguments all seem to be things that definitely the people in the movie believed, but also reflect a lot of opinions and attitudes in the real world at the time. And yeah, I think it was on target. I know that there are some parts of it that are a little overly dramatic. That gets a little Burt Lancaster at, at times. <laughs> but I think it does a really good job with the task at hand. I've watched this movie an awful lot. I directed the stage play at one point and did a, a theater in the round production of this. It was very stripped down, very bare bones, but it still lands with people who haven't seen it. I mean, I'm really looking forward to hear what you guys have to say in your breakdowns because it's a, a movie and a script that really still does pack a punch today because we're still dealing with a lot of the issues that are at play here as far as what a society is willing to go along with and the the rise of the strong man who's going to make things better for you and when i directed this it was in fall of 2016 oh god and jesus christ but the funny thing was we had, it was with the theater company that i was the artistic director of we'd picked the season a year in advance so we didn't know how fucking tits up the whole thing was going to go like we really had no idea it just kind of worked out that way that like we did this play during this contentious election year a lot of interesting conversations popped up around it because when you have good faith conversations with people from opposing sides some really interesting questions come out of it and i think that it's kind of a testament to how on target this was that this script that was written in the 1950s can still pack a wall up even now in it worked in 2016 when I did the stage production of it. And I think it still holds up to, to this day, even though parts of the, maybe the acting, maybe the writing 
maybe the filmmaking. There's some things that might be showing their age here and there, but the intention of the film and the objective of the film are fairly timeless. And yes, I did like this movie. I like this movie a lot. Uh, I, it's a weird movie to be like, I love this movie, but I really like, I've, I do. I, I, I think this is, I'm where the writing is good. The writing is so good. And when the acting is good, the acting is so good. And those are things that earn my love from a movie, even when it is a movie that can be a pretty hard watch. So yeah, I, I love this movie and I think of it often. Um, that's, that's my thoughts. Katie, what do you think? I I think I agree with you in the most part. I think the objective. um, So Stanley Kramer, the guy who directed this, was kind of into making um, movies of the time. Social pictures. Thank you. That's a good word for it. Social pictures about what was going on in America. He commented about racism. He commented about criminality and jail classism. He touches on a lot of different topics in his films, and he kind of tries to touch them very broadly and both dial in on these very specific moments like Judgment at Nuremberg does with this very particular issue of are these judges culpable in the Holocaust for their actions? And then really extrapolate it out to does this mean all Germans were culpable and so on and so forth? And how long does culpability last? And really tries to make us think about these deeper issues that can resonate with us today. The Holocaust happened in the 40s, and today we are dealing with different issues, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the lessons that this film is trying to tell us are any less important. So I think it's very on target. It's a little long, it kind of tries to go big. You know, it is incorporating a lot of different things and asking a lot of different complicated questions and not necessarily trying to give us answers for all those questions, but trying to ask them to get us to think about them. And I think that's a, a really great way to get people who maybe don't think about these things. I, I mean, not not so much now because <laughs> most people don't watch movies from this era now, but at the time, for sure. Get people to think about these things that maybe, you know, they're not super involved in politics, but they like to go to the movies. This is the kind of film that's going to get them to go a little deeper in their in their questioning. And I think it's striving to encompass all of that is the best part of it, because it does make it relatable for more than just this very specific thing that it's talking about. You can extrapolate out. Well, if this is what Germany did to the Jews, what about what other countries are doing to other persecuted minorities? And what about our own culpability in that? Like Shell brings up as like this last ditch effort, there still is valid criticism, like we said, in saying, well, what about the rest of you who just kind of let this happen? I think that's still a very important part of the film. Even if I think it's a really shitty argument in the movie, you know. And yeah, I really liked it. I think it's really well done, both from just an artistic point of view, acting, cinematography, other than maybe maybe two. I'm going to say two too many crash zooms. Cut two of them out, and we're good. Kind of how I feel about crane shots in Scarface. Like, Brian De Palma, 
Get it together. You only get one. Brian De Palma is incapable of getting it together. No, I, that's very true, especially when it comes to crane shots in the 70s. But, you know, Judgment at Nuremberg captures very basic human concepts of the darkest variety. Personally, I think it is one of the strongest points in the movie's favor that it takes the time to show those absolutely horrific and traumatizing images that are of real people, real dead bodies, real dead folks who lived lives before then and were brutally murdered by the Nazi regime. Showing that grounds the film in the realities of what they were talking about. It doesn't use euphemisms. It doesn't make allusions. It says, look at this. Look at what humanity is capable of and what does this say about us? And I don't know that you could have made this movie before the 1960s. There are literal dead bodies and horror shows in this film. And that is not something that, uh, that you know, the Hays Code or the censors would ever have allowed previous. I think Kramer really pushes a boundary by showing these awful, awful images that really ring true if you have human compassion to, to look at it and say, that could be me. That could be my loved ones, depending on the regime that I'm under. And I really appreciated Kramer's willingness to go the full length and say, here is the cost of these people's actions. And here is the cost of people's actions when they don't, when you just prioritize. Well, my country needs it. So a few people can suffer so that my country can do better. Well, what does that mean, really? What, what are you really sacrificing when you make those choices? So Kramer captures that really well in a way that was really needed at this time, because there's also a whole lot of other political commentary in this that we didn't get to uh, that's very subtle, but very purposeful, like the addition of uh, a black soldier very prominently in this. There, There is a black soldier who is cut to at very specific moments to make a comment on American actions in, in the current time period, current being when the film is being shot. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know that I, I don't know if I could say I like it, but I appreciated it. And it's definitely something that I would show people like I would show this to my kids at an appropriate age to get them to ask those questions of what does it mean? What are my responsibilities as a human? To not, if something like this were to happen, what do I need to stand vigilant against? So I am not one of those people saying, well, I didn't know. I was just living my life. When it's like, well, did you not know? Or like Yanning says, did you just not want to know? Because there's a huge gap between those two things. So, yeah, thank you for picking it, Liam. I think it gave us a lot of discussion points and it gave me an option to rant about how much I hate Nazis. And shitty arguments from bros, that too. Dan? Did you say bros? Did you just call him a bro? I did. I did <laughs> I call Maximilian Schell a bro. He, I don't think he deserves that. <laughs> I, I think he does. I think he does. Not, not the actor, but the character. Yeah, I, I'm not going to run into anything too different here with the objective. I think the objective here was to put a discussion about the Holocaust and about Nazi war crimes during World War II, in the mainstream public, in theaters, while maintaining some nuance and not making it 
black and white, no pun intended, in terms of making it overly simple and good guys versus bad guys kind of thing. Was it on target? Yeah, I think, you know, the only other different way to do this would have been the Clint Eastwood approach that he took with Sands of Iwo Jima and Flags of My Fathers, where he does two movies about the same thing, one from one cultural perspective and one from the other cultural perspective. I think you could take this story and do that. You could take the German civilian population's perspective on this, maybe pull it back a few years, show the end of the war, kind of what they went through for five years after that, something like that. And there's a way that you could do that that would be different. And I'm not saying this film should have done that. I'm just saying that's about the only other thing I can think of that would allow you to have nuance and think about, you know, quote unquote, the other side. Because again, I think this film... For a single film where you're doing it in this format as a courtroom drama, nails some really difficult themes in a very intelligent way. Again, I think the defense attorney could have been painted much more heavily as an antagonist and not had any strong arguments. I think you could have not included all of his commentary about, well, what about this? What about that? What about Churchill? What about the U.S.? Which, again, are all facts. Those are all real quotes. Those are all real things that happened. Like we talked about, the purpose of this trial was very specific, and it wasn't to say no one else deserves to go on trial in this situation, but this is about the German judges. So I really liked it. I mean, yes, of course, with the caveat that it is very heavy subject matter, and I was not prepared for the really graphic and really intense war footage, or rather death camp footage that they show two-thirds of the way into the film. But it does drive the point home that you can make fancy arguments around this and you can say I was just doing my job. But like Katie said, here is the reality of what you participated in. And here is what can happen when you start saying, well, you know, I'm not one of those people. And well, I still have my job. And well, my life is still going fine. And again, if you extrapolate this to the extreme, you end up in the situation that Germany ended up in in 1945. So, yeah, I think this is obviously a culturally important film in American cinema, and there's a reason why it's so famous. And honestly, I've never been this gripped and glued to the screen for a three-hour black and white movie that is 95% dialogue. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can sit down with the best of them and put on my podcasting hat and watch something that can some people could find, quote unquote, boring because it's like homework and it's important. And I'm looking at the nuance and the camera work and whatever. I really didn't have to try that hard to do that in this film. The dialogue is so well written. The acting is so good that it really keeps you sucked in. And yeah, sure. Maybe it's a little long. I suppose you could cut a few things out here and there. But again, I didn't find myself being bored at any point. And yeah, we could disagree a little bit on the camera stuff. Again, I I wouldn't necessarily disagree with Katie. If you took a couple of the smash zooms out, I wouldn't like feel bad about it. It's not that I feel they're all necessary. But again, it's just executed so well that at no point did any of it pull me out or make me feel the hand of the director. I really liked most of the things that he did with the camera. So I thought it was technically really well done as well. So yeah, I'm going to recommend this. It's not your every Friday night, you know, viewing lightheartedly kind of thing. 
it is on par with Schindler's List in a very different way, but you know, on that same subject. But yeah, I think this is something you should watch in school. And if you've never seen it, go out and uh, give it a try because I think it's really important. So yeah, I got to thank Liam on this one too. Thanks for picking it, Liam. You're both very welcome. (laughs) What are we doing next? Well, next, we are going to go to the theater. Ooh. And we're going to watch Oppenheimer. Ooh. I've been waiting for this one. Yeah, so that's uh that's going to be coming up. That's, you know, we're we're going to go see it. It's going to be good. And then we're going to record it. We're going to record us talking about it and then we're going to edit it. You edit it and publish it and it's going to be great. It's our first Christopher Nolan, guys. We have we we are covering this before Dunkirk. That's yeah. wild. And we haven't even done him on DC. I've had Inception in my back pocket, but we haven't done any of it yet. So I'm interested to see how much this is in our purview because this yep. might be more mm-hmm. of a DCE, but eh, yeah, it's more it's hard related to tell. enough. I think. I mean, but uh, yeah, Killian Murphy and uh, who else is in this? Emily Blunt and mm-hmm. Matt Damon. So yeah, it's oh, Matt Damon. It's got a uh, got people in it, lots of them. It'll be interesting. I this so the only Christopher Nolan film I haven't seen is Tenet. So I, and I don't plan to watch Tenet. Honestly, I just don't care. I, I am interested to see this because I really do generally enjoy Nolan's films, and this is going to be, I hope, a bit more straightforward than what he usually does. So I'm looking forward to it. Me too. All right. Well, thank you guys for another good discussion. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Check us out on Facebook at Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group, where you can uh, chime in if you're familiar with international law and things like that and talk about (laughs) the things that we might have missed on the episode, as well as if you want to hear more of our kind of sort of war film discussions, some of the more recent things we did, uh, Heat came out one or two episodes ago. If you want to check out more films like that and see what we think about those, go to dangerclosepod.com forward slash support and join our Patreon for only four bucks a month and you can get one new film every month. And we will see you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.